The reading for tonight comes from the book of Revelation, selected verses from chapter 17 to chapter 19. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held the golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles made of every kind of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, 
With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. In her was found the blood of prophets and God's holy people, of who have been slaughtered on the earth. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar, a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here. It's lovely to have you with us tonight. Um, you'll have, if you've got a proper Bible in front of you, you will have noticed that we didn't read the whole of chapter 17 to 19. It's just quite long. Um, so, but do take time when you go home. Just as you read through, I hope you'll see that uh, we've not... Uh, missed out bits that we didn't like or anything like that. It's just too long, so we just took some of the key bits on the way through. Um, but it's uh, we haven't changed anything by, by missing bits out. But do have a look and do ask questions in the question time afterwards if you want to. Um, let me uh, abuse my pulpit for just one moment, though, and say something uh, just while I've got your captive attention, which I hope I'll keep during the sermon. But uh, and this is probably not for people in the building, but for those online and those in the building, obviously you book in to come to church now uh, because we have to. If you find that um, there is a, a reason you cannot make church on, the, on Sunday and you have booked in, please, please, please do let us know before uh, Sunday morning so that we've got time to uh, let somebody in uh, on the waiting list. Every week there are people who would love to come in person who are not able to. So please, please, please do let us know um, if you find yourself incapable of coming. Great. Let's pray. Our Father God, in a culture like ours, we love entertainment. Uh, we want things that amuse us, things that are light, things that feel good. And so we pray that you would prepare our hearts to, to look at what is um, profoundly um, unentertaining, uh, the thought of judgment. But we pray, too, that we would see that, understood rightly, there is more joy and happiness to be found in your judgment than in any of the entertainments of our culture. Amen. You probably saw the news a couple of weeks ago. A group of post office um, sub-managers had their day at the Court of Appeal and their sentences were overturned. For the last 20 years or so, the post office has had a, an IT system, and the managers have been saying, look, there's a problem with it. It, it keeps saying that transactions have happened that haven't, and it looks like we've withheld money, which we haven't. And managers, hundreds and hundreds of managers have been complaining, 
And the post office's own internal IT engineers had said, yeah, there's a real problem with this system. And so the senior management had done exactly what you'd expect and just ignored the evidence and relentlessly pursued 736 people through the courts. Most of them were found guilty of fraud or theft. Their lives were destroyed. And can you imagine that? To be absolutely innocent and have your reputation destroyed. Marriages over, bankrupt, lost homes because of the legal fees, imprisoned. One submaster, Seema Misra, was jailed in 2010 and she said, it just broke me. She said, had I not been pregnant at the time, I would have committed suicide when they sent me to prison. To know you're innocent and be denied justice for over 10 years... It's no surprise that when the Court of Appeal overturned the sentences that outside, I mean, they were spraying champagne like Formula One drivers. And who can blame them as they cheered and rejoiced that finally justice had been done? And it is a wonderful thing when justice is done. And yet, and yet I imagine that some of us shifted a little bit uncomfortably in our seats as we listened to the reading. The call, rejoice, rejoice at judgment. Sing hallelujah when you hear that people have been judged and destroyed by God. It just seems a little unchristian to us. Well, what we'll see in Revelation 17 to 19 is that God's judgment, rightly understood, is a wonderful thing. And it's right to rejoice at it. Now, as we come to chapter 17, we've, uh, we've moved now past the cycle. So we had the, we had the seven seals and we had the seven trumpets and then we had the seven bowls of God's wrath. And now we're getting to the final judgment, the end of history. And the first being to come before God's judgment throne, if you like, and to be condemned is Babylon. Now, what on earth is Babylon? Babylon, we'll see, is the world against God. In chapter 17, that's what we really learn. Babylon's the world against God. Chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and with the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Now, in some ways, Revelation is the tale of two women, or two cities elsewhere. The first is Jerusalem, the people of God. We were introduced to her in chapter 12, the, the woman in the desert who is pursued by the dragon, Satan. But then at the end of Revelation, it is her who descends from heaven, pictured as the new Jerusalem, the dazzlingly beautiful bride of Jesus Christ for the wedding feast that is the end of the book. The second woman is the prostitute, Babylon. 
And she's described here a little bit like the the woman from chapter 12, a woman in the wilderness. But whereas God's people, the woman in the wilderness, were persecuted and vulnerable, here the woman is dazzling and powerful. And she's pictured leading the world astray, verses 2 to 4. She takes the world away from God's truth, God's beauty, God's goodness. Now, always we've seen in, in Revelation, adultery is, is a metaphor, a picture of, of taking people away from the true God, tempting them away from God. It's spiritual unfaithfulness. As she sits, we're told, on a beast, uh, that is the brutal anti-God powers of, of Revelation 16 and 13. She has immense power represented by her ten horns. And shockingly, she doesn't just persecute God's people. She's drunk with the blood of God's people. Verse 6. I mean, it's just a horrific image. But what exactly does Babylon represent? Well, Babylon is, Babylon, if you like, is the world against God. Uh, we're given a very strong hint towards the, uh, at the end of chapter 17. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. A city that rules over the kings of the earth. And then in a verse we didn't read, in verse 9, we're told that she sits on seven hills. You think, hang on a second, this isn't all that subtle. In the first century, a great city ruling over the earth that sits on seven hills. That's Rome. I mean, <laughs> but there's a good reason to think that by Babylon, John means more than just Rome. Or He means Rome at that point in history, but he means that Babylon applies at other points in history too. How can I say that? Well, in 1 Peter 5, a couple of books before the book of Revelation, but written at about the same time, Peter refers to one of his ministry team as she who is in Babylon sends you greeting. Babylon at this point is just ruins. So he can't mean physical Babylon, but Babylon is a cipher, a code word for something else. Uh, the description of Babylon in chapter 18 of our reading was taken from the Old Testament, from Ezekiel 26 to 27, except there, it's not a description of Babylon, it's a description of the city of Tyre, the other direction from Israel. Then in Isaiah 14, 22 to 25, again an Old Testament prophet, but he refers to the Assyrian Empire as Babylon before Babylon was even a great power. And then finally, we saw last year, if you were with us, in Revelation 11.8, that Jerusalem is described using the words that are described, used for Babylon elsewhere in Revelation. So when you put it all together, it seems that Babylon is Revelation language for human civilization standing against God, with all the culture, the wealth, and the power that humanity can bring together, used to oppress God's people and to deny the need for God. It makes sense, actually, when you come back to the very first mention of Babylon in the Bible. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. That's why Babylon is called Babylon, Babel, Babylon. And the Tower of Babel was humanity saying, we're going to build a great tower because we don't need God. We can be great without God. We can achieve everything God can give us. Who needs God? Look at us. And thereafter in the Bible, Babylon is human civilization acting as an alternative to and an opponent of God. 
Now, civilization is a good thing. The final glorious image of Revelation is a civilization, a beautiful city with music and culture that is just magnificent. But this isn't civilization in the service of God enjoying his gifts. This is civilization setting itself up as anti-God. And when Paul in Ephesians talks about the opponents to, you know, when you're trying to live for Jesus, he says there are three things that make it hard. There's the flesh, the world, and the devil. Babylon is the world, as in the systems of the world that stand opposed to God. And Babylon, we read here, this description tells you Babylon is very attractive. That's the point. John is astonished by her in verse 6. You know, even though he can see that she's drunk on the blood of God's people, he's still absolutely astonished by this amazing, beautiful vision. And throughout chapter 18, we read that Babylon makes people rich and provides luxuries. It's artisan coffee and smartphones and electric cars. It's all there in Babylon. Babylon offers us what we long for. That's the point of this beautiful, striking image in chapter 17. Babylon gives comfort, security, splendor. Babylon makes you feel mighty and magnificent because you're part of, well, the the thing that all the world is joined in. Babylon makes you feel that you've backed the winner. And Babylon says to the Christian, all of this All this wealth, all this luxury, all this power, all this security, all of it is yours. If you just compromise just a tiny little bit, you don't have to deny Jesus, but in the first century, you just need to worship Caesar as well as Jesus. And perhaps in the 21st century, you don't have to deny Jesus. You've you've just got to be willing to affirm our culture's views on sex and relationships when it's in conflict with the Bible. Okay, so Babylon is human culture and civilization opposing God. Where is Babylon today? It's, it's not like Babylon is in London, so if you move to Paris, you're out of Babylon. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of work like that. Babylon is the dominating culture of the day that opposes God. So I think it was there in communism in the middle of the 20th century as the tide of history seemed to be turning red and there was massive persecution all the way across Southeast Asia and Eastern Europe. Churches being stamped out everywhere. But today, for us in London, Let's be honest, it's complicated because our culture is built on Christian foundations. We're able to meet openly as church. But those foundations are pretty well buried now. And where they're not deeply buried, they're being dug up actively in places. And it seems to me that the dominant, almost universal system of Western secular liberalism is not what you'd call friendly towards Christian belief at the moment. And it is getting a little bit more uncomfortable and difficult to follow Jesus and fit in with our culture. In that sense, you might say Western secular liberalism is certainly Babylon-ish. Well, what are we supposed to do? How do we respond? We've got this vision that tells us that uh, civilization can can be very attractive while opposing God. Well, we're told what to do. Um, 
in the next chapter, in chapter 18, verse 4, come out from her, my people. Come out of her, my people, so you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. Don't be part of Babylon. Don't share her sins. Don't therefore share in the punishment that's coming to her. Well, how do you not be part of Babylon? It's not calling God's people to geographical separation, to retreat to the hills. If you watch Nomadland, you know, just stay out of culture, buy an RV and just drive around or, or form a commune. We're never told to do that in the Bible. It's called to do something much, much harder, which is to remain physically present, but to be spiritually separate. Much harder. To be geographically present in culture, but to live differently. Seeking to bless and serve the community that God has put us in, but not to be shaped by it. To be salt and light, courageously, compassionately different. So live in London, but do not share London's values. So work here, but don't make an idol of your career. And don't make the pursuit of financial success and the things it buys you, your God. Date, get married if you want and if you're able, but don't be defined by whether you're in a relationship. And don't follow the world's standards when it comes to sexual behavior. Have savings, get on the property ladder, but don't make your decisions on the basis of, does this help me achieve comfort and security in this world? Come out from Babylon. Babylon is the world against God. And secondly, Babylon, Babylon will fall. This is what we see in chapter 18. So as I'm sure you all know, on the 24th of August, 410 AD, Alaric led his Visigoth army into the eternal city, Rome. I found it on Wikipedia. The um, benefits of a classical education or access to the internet. So after almost 800 years of the growth and then the global dominance of the Roman Empire, finally, the city of Rome fell. Now, history is full of proud, mighty institutions that seemed just invincible, but they all fell. The Titanic sank. The British Empire crumbled. Hitler's thousand-year Reich did not last a thousand years. Lehman Brothers Bank. Blockbuster video. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, then you're, yeah, you're very young. Um, <laughs> ask anybody who's older than 30. And Blockbuster was everywhere, and now it's, nobody's heard of it. Nowhere. They all appeared invincible, and they all fell. And one day, everything that appears unshakable and dominant and mighty in our culture today will be nothing. One day, Apple's shares will be worth less than an apple. One day, the only thing that will be tweeting will be birds. All these mighty cultural forces will just be nothing. Verse 1 of chapter 18 after this, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. The earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great! She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. As every Babylon in history falls, so there will be an ultimate moment when at last... All the forces of oppressive human anti-God power 
will fall, and this time they will rise no more. Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. She celebrated greed and oppression, and now, now she'll get back what she deserves. Judgment will come. Now, chapter 18, it really emphasizes two things. First, Babylon will fall. But second, there's this enormous emphasis on wealth and luxury. So you get all these different groups lamenting the fall of Babylon, and they all lament really the same things. Look at 14 to 16. Then they'll say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor has vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They'll weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. The merchants had been seduced by the money that could be made in Babylon, the luxuries that could be bought and sold. All of the groups lament the loss of this luxury and wealth. It's not for nothing that Jesus warns us again and again. You cannot serve both God and money. Babylon seduces with the wealth and the luxury. And we want our lives to be full of fancy holidays, designer clothes and gourmet food. And so Babylon seduces us because we want to be wealthy and comfortable too. And when we're enjoying those things, we cannot bear the thought of giving them up. We can't think that we might have to let go of them. Verse 21 of chapter 18. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The nations, we're told again and again, were tempted to adultery by her just infatuated with the wealth and the luxury. And so as we hear a mighty angel flinging a millstone into the sea to represent the doom of the one who tempted people, we remember Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Babylon will fall. Don't be deceived. Now, I think that there are times that living for Jesus, it can feel like we're told quite often you're on the wrong side of history if you live for Jesus. Actually, it can feel more like you're on the wrong side of gravity. You're, you're just resisting a, a, an irresistible reality. You're denying a, a central reality by hanging on to your obscure, weird little faith. And we can feel very intimidated by that. But the truth is, Western secular culture that's so dominant, pervasive, and permanent will fall. Don't be fooled or intimidated. Okay, but how should we respond then to this promise that Babylon will fall? 
I think you summarize it this way, endure patiently. Throughout Revelation, there have been calls to God's people to endure patiently. Look, it's going to be hard to live for Jesus in this world, so you need to endure patiently. And the calls to endure patiently are grounded in the confidence that one day judgment will come. There can be little doubt that if Derek Chauvin, the police officer, had been acquitted of killing George Floyd, there would have been violent riots. No doubt. The simmering resentments and visceral demands for justice would have exploded in rage. But the guilty verdict took the heat out of the crowd. Justice had been satisfied. And so too for God's people. The certain knowledge that God will one day judge Babylon, their oppressor, enables the persecuted church to endure patiently, rather than give in to hopelessness or bitterness or a desire for vengeance. So too, when we suffer other injustices, I guess for most of us, lesser injustices, the knowledge that God will one day judge enables us not to give in to bitterness or hopelessness or despair. Babylon will fall, so endure. Babylon's fall is the source of woe and lament for those who were seduced by its power and wealth. But for God's people, it is a day of rejoicing. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. They rejoice. Rescue has happened. They rejoice. They've been vindicated. On earth, they were judged by Babylon, by the culture of the day, as unworthy as worthy of scorn, as fit to be persecuted. It's the trash of the world, Paul says. But God has overturned that verdict, and they rejoice that they've been vindicated, shown to have been innocent. But more than that, they rejoice because Babylon has been destroyed. The source of oppression and tyranny and wickedness in this world has been brought down. Three times they're told to rejoice in 1820. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice over the fall of Babylon. And three times in chapter 19, God's people respond with, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Once the the living creatures join in as well in verse 4. And hallelujah is not spoken politely. It's shouted, verse 1, with a great roar. It rumbles out like peals of thunder, the churning of a waterfall in verse 6. I think the the loudest crowd I've ever been at was at the opening of a National Trust stately home. No, just checking if you're awake. It was uh, it was actually a football game in Argentina. This this is actually the match. Um, and uh, when we won, 
it was like 80,000 Latin American people spontaneously combusted and just exploded with noise and jubilation and all sorts of other things. What about you? I don't know. I imagine all of us have been in a crowd, whether a music festival or a sports stadium, that just erupted with joy and noise and euphoria. And it was incredible to be part of. And all because 11 people who we liked managed to kick an inflatable ball more proficiently than 11 people we don't like quite as much. And that was the cause of great euphoria. (laughs) What on earth will it be like to be part of the crowd on the day when God overturns every cause of injustice and oppression in this world? We struggle sometimes in liberal Britain to embrace God's judgment as a good thing. But God's promise to destroy oppressive powers is very good news. I mean, imagine on that day standing next to a North Korean family who spent 10 years being worked and starved to death in a labor camp just because they love Jesus. Imagine being stood next to a Pakistani girl, kidnapped at the age of 12, forced to convert and marry, and suffered years of abuse because, as a Christian, she's a third-class citizen and no one cared. Imagine standing next to an Eritrean lady whose husband was thrown into that horrific religious prison for 14 years just because he was a pastor. She had to raise the children herself explain to them why they'd never be allowed to go to university and then spend the last years of her life looking after the broken shell of a man who emerged from the prison. All true stories. Imagine standing next to them on that day. It's a little bit inappropriate to rejoice at judgment. I don't think we'd be saying that. And the more that you and I care about the oppressed the more that we pray for, advocate for the persecuted church, the greater our joy will be on that day. Indeed, if we only had eyes to see what's happening in our own nation, the corruption or at least wicked disregard for the poor that means Grenfell cladding was authorized all over the country, the sexism, racism, domestic abuse, the murder, the lying, the casual killing of the unborn, the callous neglect of the poor, If we saw those things a bit more clearly, we might cry out for God's justice with more passion. We might rejoice more wholeheartedly. It will be a day of great joy. But as well as teaching us to look forward to that day when we'll rejoice, I think this passage encourages us to engage more hopefully as well with the injustices of our day. Now, if you care about justice, but you think our culture is ultimate, then you'll campaign on the things that are popular. You'll follow the hashtags. But if you care about justice, but you also know that Babylon will fall, every Babylon will fall, then you'll campaign on unpopular things too, because they're right. When William Wilberforce began his campaign in this country against the slave trade, it was unthinkable Britain would ever turn its back on a trade that was 11% of our economy. We'd never do that. But he knew that every evil institution is eventually brought down by God. And so he campaigned away. And he knew too that to be involved 
in the fight against injustice is to be involved in a cause behind which God is, and a cause which brings great joy when victories are won on this world, a foretaste of the eruption of joy on that last day when God ends all evil and oppression forever. Trust in Christ now so you'll know that you'll be part of that joy then. Stand with him and not with Babylon. And God's day of justice will be a day of joy. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you care about those who suffer in this world, that you hate and will end oppression. Thank you that Babylon will one day fall. Help us, we pray, to to cling to the Lord Jesus, that we might be part of your people on that day. Help us, too, to care about injustice the way you do. Help us to be courageous in this world as we wait for your final vindication in the next. Amen.